Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. My guest today has written several books on the Latin language, including Learn Latin from the Romans. And today we're going to talk about the history and how to study Latin with Eleanor Ditty. Please thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And how and as I always ask my guests and uh, before we start, how did you end up falling in love with Latin? It seems like it seems like you did. I just think it's a, yeah, I just have always thought it's a really cool language. So um when I when I as a little kid saw Latin words, I thought, boy, those look beautiful. And I want to learn more about them. And so then I did. Did, did you learn it in school? Did you? In... I tried to learn it in school. So um, already I mean, when in I the was like school, like, 10 or 12, like in... I was, already when I was a kid, I was really wanting to learn Latin, but there wasn't Latin in my school until I was about 14. And then it was not a very good Latin class. So, you know, I tried to learn Latin, but it didn't work very well. But then my school only had two years of Latin. So took a a lousy Latin class in the first year, a lousy Latin class in the second year from a different lousy Latin teacher. And then it became clear that was, you know, that was all my school offered. And I hadn't learned very much and I still really wanted to learn it. So then my parents paid a real Latin teacher, like somebody who actually had a master's in the subject and knew about it to come to our house once a week. And I could, you know, I had an hour a week with him and I could make of it what I would. I made quite a lot of that. So then I, then I did Latin at university after that. Mm. Now, of course I want to ask is because as it's in my opinion, official dead language, but it's still been used in science in the, in when you you see flowers, they they have the Latin names, and you still kind of find new Latin words eventually. So, is Latin really a dead language, as we, as call it, or is that kind of a misconception? Yeah, I think it's a misconception. I mean, obviously, it depends on exactly how you define a dead language. So, if you define a dead language as one that has no speakers. Latin is definitely not a dead language because there are people who speak it. There are people who speak it really fluently. If you define a dead language as one that is not actively used, again, Latin doesn't fit that category because there are people who use it actively. They write it. They come up with new words. There are Latin words for car, Latin words for bicycle. But um, if you define it as a dead language, as a language that there are no native speakers, so no babies grow up speaking it, then you might be able to say Latin is a dead language because I don't think anybody actually raises their children with Latin as a first language. That would be an interesting experiment, though, have a kid to learn, raise a kid to learn, learn Latin. I think that would be an interesting experience, see how, see how it goes. Well, I'm sure it would, it would go just the way it goes when kids learn any other language, but it might not be totally fair to the kid because mm. while they were being raised speaking Latin, they wouldn't be being raised speaking something else. And yeah, like I said, you use Latin in experimental and for scientific search right too, don't right? That, that that's but they use Latin in the in science so some well, parts of the science world as well. Have, they just have words. So you know if a new plant species is discovered, then they'll want a new Latin word for that. Um, but using isolated words isn't quite the same as using a language. Um, I would say the people who use it are people who use kind of more than one word at a time. Um, and there are, there are people who speak it and people who write in it and you know, people who socialize in it. There was a a Latin language dinner party where I live mm. last weekend and I couldn't go because I was too exhausted. But um, there was this group of people who got together to have dinner speaking Latin. 
That's a, that's the kind of sounds like fun, to be on to be honest. Yes, it would have been fun. It would have been fun. I was what? sorry that I was too exhausted. Was it kind of like the dress in the Roman clothes and um, it's the Roman, the Roman lifestyle or just some Latin? Latin Those people just speak Latin. I mean, you can do it all kinds of ways, but most of today's spoken Latinists, they are, they don't dress up as Robins. They just... I mean, for Latin. the occasion, for the occasion, um, the dinner party thing, that they didn't go all Roman in the dinner party no they didn't i'm sure i wasn't there but i'm sure knowing them that they did not go all roman um but i have an ancient school room where we do dress up as romans and learn about how people learned things in antiquity and sort of experience ancient education and when we do latin there we sometimes do it you know as a spoken language and there we are dressed up as romans so I so I'd love to try that one time because you see I I, I do admire my it's quite complicated to put on a toad right isn't it like it's not to just put it over your head and boop still have, there you have a toad yeah it's true we don't actually wear togas because togas mm. weren't what they wore for like normal activity so a kid going to school probably isn't going to dress in a toga mm. um, you wear a tunic because yeah. it. The point of a toga is you can't actually do anything in it. It's such a difficult, uncomfortable, impractical garment that it shows you're a member of the leisured classes, right? Only somebody who doesn't have to do anything can wear a toga, and therefore it's a symbol of status. Hmm. Now, we don't have to talk about the origin. Before we start with the origin of uh, the language, something I want to know because... You said that there's a lot of people speaking Latin today, so it's not really a dead language by the definition. But it's do we have any sort of database on how many we believe? I mean, if you're a scholar, you have to learn the language, of course. So apart from including scholars, and I would have hesitate in using the word amateurs, but for lack of a better word, is there a, do you have a database on how many speak, speak Latin in in a no, world today? We don't. We don't, and it will depend on kind of like how, how many there are would depend on which people you count. So there are people who speak Latin really well. They, are, have, they have total fluency. And then there are people like me. I can have a conversation in Latin, but it's not, my Latin spoken is not that great. So I'm hesitating, I'm stumbling, I'm sometimes making mistakes. Um, And then there's another level down. There's people who like to try, but they can't really even have the conversation. So how many you say there are would depend on like which of us you count. And I think if you count only the top group, the really fluent ones, there's probably between 100 and 200 people in the world. And if you count not too many, not too many, not too many. But if you count people like me who, you know, we can have a conversation, it just doesn't, it's just not very elegant. Then I think you're already into the thousands. And if you count the next level down to the people who are trying and they're learning, but maybe they can't have a conversation yet, then you're into, you know, significant thousands, but probably not the ten thousands. So yeah, yeah, because I was uh, watching about the language, and it seems that you know, as a scholar, you you don't learn to actually speak it. You learn to because you just don't, you have to read it, right? It, speaking is something different than yeah. reading. That's right. And if you count those people, of course, the ones who know Latin sometimes to a very high level, they can write it really well, but they don't speak it. Then you're well over ten thousand, probably. You know. 50, 60,000. There's, there's plenty of people who know Latin, just not as a spoken language. There, there is a, you, I don't know if you've heard about him, but there is, he does quite a huge following and there is a YouTube channel called Polymathy, I think he's called, and he also does, does have one side channel where it's called Scorpio Martinez, where he speak, just speak Latin. And he he's, I would say he's fluent in Latin and he's such an excellent teacher. You can, if you watch his videos, he's 
passionate about the language. He speaks several languages as well as ancient Greek. So he's passionate about languages and he's, uh, he's an, if you want to learn more about the language, I highly recommend checking out his channel. It's, a, it's an excellent Latin channel. That's great. That's great. So yeah, uh, of course, we're going to start talking about how to study the language as well in this episode and uh, eventually, but I want to talk about the origin and the history of the language. So where, where does, uh, does it come from, the language itself, Latin? So Latin's an Indo-European language, and that means that it's related to Greek, Persian, Russian, English, German, um, Welsh, but it's a long way back. Um, so maybe 4,000 years ago, um, somewhere in what's now um, Russia, there were some people who spoke Indo-European and those people eventually moved, well, probably some of them are still there, but many of them eventually moved. And one group of those people moved across Europe and came into Italy where they found some other people already living. And these, these new people, these Indo-Europeans, divided themselves into little groups and settled in different places mm. and what happens to languages over time, they kind of just naturally change. So, you know, if people in two different villages that are next to each other are always talking to each other and like they intermarry and the kids play together and they may be two different villages, but there's constant communication, then the languages will change together. So they'll go on being able to communicate. But now supposing that something happens like, there's a huge earthquake and a gigantic fault opens up between the two villages and those people don't, they can't speak to each other anymore. Then their languages will start changing separately. And after many centuries, they won't be able to communicate with each other anymore because they'll now speak different languages. That's just what languages do. So when the speakers of Indo-European got to Italy, they already spoke something that was somewhat different from what other groups of Indo-Europeans were speaking by that time, because the other they weren't in contact with the other groups anymore, and it took them a long time to get to Italy. And then when they settled down in Italy, they started kind of losing contact with each other. So some of those people ended up speaking a language we call Umbrian, and some of them ended up speaking a language we call Oscan, and some and of them of ended up the speaking a language well. we Note the... Etruscans are among those people who were there first. Mm. So they are not Indo-Europeans. They spoke something that was really different from Latin. Although you're right that they were right there, but they're they're not related linguistically to Latin, whereas the Oscans and the Umbrians are. And for a long time, the Oscans and the Umbrians and the Etruscans were really sort of big, powerful people, whereas the people speaking Latin, it was a very small, insignificant place. But then Rome started getting bigger and bigger and they conquered the people who spoke Oscan and they conquered the people who spoke Umbrian and they conquered the people who spoke Etruscan and they conquered the people in Italy who spoke Greek. Um, and the people who spoke those languages gradually in Italy gradually shifted to speaking Latin. Do you have, do you have an idea of and how so long time the period it took? Do you have an idea of Sorry? Do you have an idea of how long time, time period it took before they kind of evolved into speaking Latin in the, in the Italian peninsula? Before? It depends really on where. So basically Latin kind of radiates out from Rome. So the people who were close to Rome get conquered early and switch to Latin early. And by the, by the first century BC, I think most of most probably you have more than half of the people in Italy speaking Latin um, by the first century AD it's Oscan and Umbrian and Etruscan are definitely going 
Greek is not going so clearly because, of course, the Greeks, although they were under Roman rule in Italy, um, they had contact. I mean, they're under Roman rule everywhere by the first century AD. Um, so Greece had been conquered as well. But the Greeks in Italy kind of retained Greek for a long time because they had contact with Greek speakers elsewhere, whereas the Oscans and the Umbrians and the Etruscans um, end up more quickly speaking Latin. They were trying to provide Sorry? Romans in the 8th BC, right, to Greece? Um, the Rome conquers Greece gradually, but I think a fair date to give is 146 BC. Hmm. Um, that was when Rome kind of stopped messing around with whether they were ruling Greece or not and said, okay, you guys are under our control and you're going to do what we say. And if you don't like it, we'll cut your heads off. Yeah. Um, before that, they were kind of a bit nicer. But hmm. from 146, they were very kind of clear about it. Hmm. So I think that's a fair day. Um, and then there are other Greek speakers in other places, of course. So like Alexander the Great conquered huge chunks of the Near East. And so places like Egypt had a lot of Greek speakers in them. Egypt was kind of the, I'm not saying the majority of people spoke Greek because a lot of people still spoke Egyptian, but the, the government of Egypt was entirely Greek speaking um, until the Romans conquered that. And they don't do that until 31 BC. Um, so that's, Egypt is the last part of the Greek speaking world to be conquered by the Romans. And after 31 BC, then everybody who speaks Greek is under Roman rule. And of course, the alphabet, because you just spoke about this in the Etruscan episode, and the, my just she claimed that the alphabet, is, while it's come from Greece, that it, it came to the Etruscans first, and they kind of perfected it, and then again, of course, like the Romans always do, they stole the Etruscan language, and then again made it into what, what we know no language is not right. Well, they took the alphabet from the Etruscans, not yeah, the language. The, I yeah, but the, the alphabet, not, yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't really say the Etruscans perfected it exactly. Um, I mean, the kind of, I mean, it, the kind of made it look more or less similar to what we, to the Latin language, that they took the, took the Greek alphabet and they turn into somewhat what we know as Latin language and then the Romans took it again from there. Right. I think it's a bit more complicated than mm. that. So of course. there were many different Greek alphabets. Um, now there's only one Greek alphabet, but back when this was happening, every little Greek city had its own alphabet. And so the letters looked different and sometimes they stood for different things. So there were some cities where the letter that looks like our X stood for the sound that it has today in for us, a KS sound, a K sound like an X. But in other Greek cities, that same symbol stood for a K sound, a KH sound. And it's really just kind of an accident that... Athens ended up using the alphabet where that symbol that looks like X was a KH and the Etruscans ended up getting a Greek alphabet where that symbol was a KS. So the Etruscans didn't do that change. They just, you know, they just got a different version of the alphabet. And then the kind of thing the Etruscans did is they changed what symbols stood for what sounds to fit the sounds in Etruscan. Mm. They kind so, of simplified example, it in a way. In Greek, well, in a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. So in Greek, there's a, a C sound, a K sound and a G sound, yes? Yeah. A C and a G. And in Latin as well, there's a K sound and a G sound. But in Etruscan, there that difference is not there. So the Greeks had an alphabet with a K and a G, and the Etruscans changed it so that both of those symbols just stood for K. And then when the Romans came along, they, 
they got an alphabet with multiple symbols for k, but no symbol for g. And that was not great for writing Latin because they needed g. And so what they did was they took one of the k symbols and they added a little tail to it. So they took the c, which in Greek had been the g sound, but when the Romans got it, it was a k sound and they added a tail to it. And that's how it became our G. Now, so, so, the, something that kind of, because I read, read, the, read some Norwegian historians here, the first book about Latin as well. Um, it seems like the grammar is incredibly complicated if you learn, want to learn. Latin, so because and uh, I, 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 it's like way above my intellect in learning language. I mean, I speak somewhat Spanish enough to have a conversation, but when Latin, the grammar is really important, isn't it? Like way more important if you want to learn, like I said, Spanish, because their grammar may not be as important in the language if you want to have a basic conversation, but if in Latin, you kind of have to learn a grammar. And I want to say, use the quote for Forrest Gump. I'm not a smart man, so so you know how how do you why is it so much much more important to learn grammar in Latin compared to modern languages today, where it not, might not be as important if you just want to speak the language. Yeah, actually, I don't think it's true that grammar is more important in Latin. It's also very important in Spanish, but you're not noticing certain aspects of Spanish grammar because they match English. And for example, in English, we determine, we use word order very heavily as a grammatical um, feature. So Jane sees Jim is a sentence with a completely different meaning from Jim sees Jane, yes? Mm -hmm. The word order in English, it is grammatical. It makes the difference between what those words mean. And that is true of Spanish as well. And so when an English speaker learns Spanish, they don't even notice that the word order is filling the same function as it does in English. So you think of Spanish as being kind of really much simpler because you don't really notice the the things it does, which are actually in many ways complicated, but which are the same as what we do. So we don't even notice them. Whereas in Latin, word order has no grammatical function. So if you want to know who sees whom, you can't do it by word order. You have to do it another way. It's, it's not as crucial we... as in English or Spanish, let's say. In, in... Sorry? It's, it's not as casual as it, in English or Spanish, like you said, you don't notice it. It's more it's noticeable in a sense. Well, it's more different. It's more different, basically, um, because they don't do a lot of things that we do by word order. They do by putting endings on things, by changing their form. So if you want to know whether Jim sees Jane or Jane sees Jim, you have to put different endings on Jim and Jane. And because that's kind of alien to us, when we learn Latin, it, we have to really think about those endings. Because if you don't get the endings right, then you don't know who sees whom, yes? Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not really that the grammar is more important. It's that the grammar is very different. And therefore, it's more noticeable. And we have to think about it more. What are some rules you can have to kind of fun, fun little rules to say, say if you want to learn? Do you, do you have to learn a grammar as well? It's kind of, it, is it a must learn in the Latin language or can you just casually yes. learn it later for in, in a sense? No, you need to learn it because otherwise you never know who, who's doing the action of mm. any particular sentence and who's being, being acted upon. Um, you, you can't really make any sense of a Latin sentence if you don't learn what those endings mean. But there are lots of different ways to learn what the endings mean. So one way is you sit down and you, and you recite them over and over again to yourself aloud until you know them. And another possibility is you sit down and you write them out 
over and over again until you know them. And another possibility is you learn Latin as a spoken language. And so maybe you don't have to sort of focus on memorizing those endings, but you still need to learn them. You just learn them in context. And that is slower, but less painful. And, and then that's, another that's way actually how I learned Spanish as well. I, I learned verbally by this. So I learned yeah. Spanish verbally, so I didn't have to write down this. It was easier for me because then I also learned how to say the, the word, like comienza, for example. If I learned to say it instead of write it, then it's more, then I also know how to say the word instead of just having to read it from a paper. I, I know how to say it yes. as well. Yes. Now that, whether that is really useful for Latin depends, of course, on mm. what you want to do with your Latin. So if you want to speak Latin, knowing how to say it is really good. If you don't want to speak Latin, then, you know, whether knowing how to say it is useful, it depends on your goals. But certainly you can learn Latin um, by, you know, by osmosis in a sense where you don't specifically memorize the endings but you you pick them up either from reading simple texts or from having conversations. But it is much slower as a way of learning the language than just sitting down and memorizing them. Something that I used when I, when I learned English back in school, you know, was to, as I used the word, word I made a tab, tablet, like three columns, and I spoke in like C, first I was C, so seen for, as an example and then I just wrote the scene several times so several times in the, in the tablet deleted it repeated and over and over again yeah. until I learned the grammatic, grammatical part of the, of the language which I, I think yeah. is quite genius if, if I would say so good um, I mean in, in Latin Latin grammar circles, we call those principal parts. So English has three principal parts, see, saw, seen. Latin's got four. So um, amo, amare, amawi, amatum would be the four for one particular verb. Greek has six. So, you know, you can do the same thing that you did with see, saw, seen. You can do it with Latin verbs. And it's a good idea to do it with Latin verbs. And many people do. So something I want to discuss as well is that sounds in Latin, because, you know, perhaps what's the biggest misconception as all is the word Caesar itself, because it's in reality, that's not, that's not at all how you say it, because it's Kaiser. Because C, the C isn't really a C, like it's K, pronounced the K and in my, in, I was a little, I must admit, when I bought the Alexia by Anna Kromlin, I had the sweeter translation where he writes Anna with a C and Kromlinus with a C. And Gibbon, I wouldn't say guilty, is guilty of this as well, because they use the C as Kromlini, Anna Kromlini, for, for example. So, and if you don't know how, don't know the little, I wouldn't say trick, but if you know, don't know this, that C is pronounced with a K, it can be a little bit confusing, confusing right? So Cicero as well, for example, isn't really how you say Cicero. It's more like, right? That, that's, that's the case. Well, it, it would be Kikero um, mm. is how he would have pronounced his name, is Kikero. And Caesar, yes, you're right. He would have pronounced it Kaisar. It gets complicated if you want to be precise, you know, the pronunciation of Latin changed over time. So um, if you go late enough, then you then that sound does stop being a K. So it really depends on which Roman you want to talk about. But for the classical period, basically, that that C is a K and um, the the V is a W. So what are some other words that we may not think is pronounced like this in our alphabet versus, but it's not really like C and K, like K? Well, the, the V is a big one. So people think that Caesar said veni, vidi, vici, but he actually said 
wainy weedy weeky um which is because that's a that's a um a wuss sound and then the um the a is an ah not an a so it's not a pater but a pater um just for example so that's just it there's the rest is really said like like it is right um no i think there are a lot of small complications but probably not worth going into i mean like mm. there are isn't quite like our r but you know our r differs between you know the french r the italian r the american r um they probably had something closer to the italian r but it's it's probably not not worth going into all the details mm. so of course what we've talked about grammar but what else should you look into when when learning a language aside from grammar obviously there's there's more but like adjectives and sub adjectives etc yeah i mean i think what you want to do depends to a certain extent what your goals are in Mm. learning the language because latin is a language with literally thousands of years of history in all of which there are interesting texts to read but you know it didn't remain completely constant so some people for example they they want to read the bible in latin and they maybe would have a slightly different focus from people who want to read cicero or people who want to have a conversation but the grammar the grammar is super important for everybody those those endings are crucial the understanding that latin nouns have gender so they're going to be either masculine or feminine or neuter and the gender is not in the in the object the gender is in the thing so you can have two words for the same thing and one of them would be feminine and one of them would be masculine because it's not the thing that's masculine or feminine it's the word um and that that's sometimes confusing and once you once you decide what noun you're using then if you're using an adjective it's got to have the same gender as the noun so it has to agree how this is how easy would it be for one that's if if i was italian to learn nothing how different how much different is it italian yeah it's very different it would be much easier yeah it would be much easier for an italian than it is for an english speaker because most of the vocabulary of italian comes directly from latin so english is the germanic language and a lot of our basic words don't come from latin and so we learn the latin words as kind of separate vocabulary items and something like amo it means i love and it's got nothing in common with love per se i mean you can you can think of english words that are related to it so amiable for example mm. is related to amo but in italian a lot of the words are still like visibly related so the vocabulary is much easier and italian still has gender it doesn't have three genders but it's still got two of them and that you know that just makes life much easier for the italians so would for example reading Cicero, sorry the Cicero, caesar's gallic war in latin help i know i read it in english myself but if you wanted to learn in the latin would it be be starting with the Cicero, caesar sorry i, I don't think Yeah, I don't think it would be very feasible to simply sit down with Caesar if you didn't know. No, 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 not like that. But uh, I mean, reading his Gallic War account in in Latin would that be a good start? If you not talking with Caesar himself, but reading the Gallic War, his account of the Gallic War in Latin, would that be a good start? I 
I would be, it's a good thing to do, but it's not a good place to start in the sense that it would be too hard. If you don't know any Latin at all, you would not want to start there because you wouldn't understand it. It's a good text for people to read once they have learned some Latin, some Latin vocabulary and grammar. Now, there is a book, book out there. I don't know, I'm not sure where if you heard of it, Familia Romana, where is B. When should you start? Yeah. When should, should you start with Familia Romana to, if you want? Well, to Familia Romana, yeah, that's an that's an elementary textbook. So that is for people who know nothing and who want to learn Latin to use it actively. So Familia Romana is really a good textbook to use if you are learning via actually speaking Latin. That's the preferred textbook for that. Um, it, you know, it is a beginner's textbook. So once you've been doing this for a while, you need to move on and do something else. Like, for example, Caesar's Gallic Wars. But it's a much better place to start than Caesar's Gallic Wars are. But it's not for everyone because some people, you know, they don't want to learn to use Latin actively at all. They just want to read texts. And therefore, learning all the vocabulary that you need in order to have a conversation in Latin is maybe not how they want to spend their their time. So how how advanced should you have to be if you want to read, like you said, Cicero's text, Cicero's work in original Latin? How, how advanced Latin do you need? Um, I would say for... For Caesar, you can do that after three or four months of really intensive study or after one year of kind of moderate study or after two years of kind of slow study. For Cicero, I think the easiest Cicero you could do after maybe six months of really intensive study. And then if your studying is less intense, it would take longer. So, of course, it's part of the learning the language now, but something I want to talk about is the Byzantines, because Justinian I, I think, was the last to speak the Latin as an emperor. And how did it evolve from the Byzantines, from Latin into the Greek language? Well, I don't think Latin evolves into. I mean, Greek, not evolved necessarily. I don't think that's the best word for it. But like, how did it change? I suppose is the better word for into Greek. Okay. It it doesn't really. Latin doesn't change into Greek. So, the Greeks lived in Greece hmm. for a really long time. So back, you know, three thousand years ago, they were already sitting there in Greece speaking Greek. And when the Romans came along, then the Greeks became part of the Roman Empire. And that meant that some of them learned Latin, but they never all learned Latin. They went, they went right on speaking Greek. And then in the fourth century, the Emperor Constantine decides that Rome, the Roman Empire is too big to run from one capital, and we should have two capitals. And he founds a second one in what is today Istanbul. Not Constantinople. At that point. It, at, at that point, it was called Byzantium, and then it mm. became Constantinople because of him. Mm. Um, so that was a kind of a new Rome, and therefore obviously a lot of the stuff that happened in it happened in Latin because he's transferring half the government of the empire there, but it remained a Greek speaking city. Constantinople was never fundamentally a Latin speaking city. It was a Greek speaking city with a lot of Latin speakers in it. And then the emperors that came after him, some of them were fundamentally Greek speaking and some of them were fundamentally Latin speaking and some of them, frankly, were fundamentally speakers of something else because it, you know, it all depended. The Roman Empire had a huge number of languages in it. And obviously, life does not go so well for the empire in the West. And so in the early 5th century, 
you start to have like serious problems with the Western empire surviving. And then eventually it becomes clear that all there really is left is the Eastern empire, the bit that's run out of Byzantium, and they still think of themselves as the Roman empire. So the government is still... I mean, they do so all the way up to 1453. Yeah, but we're not there yet. We're only Mm. at the beginning of the 6th century. So the government at that point is still basically in Latin, and Justinian is, at the beginning of his reign, does a lot of stuff in Latin. But in the course of Justinian's reign, it becomes clear that this is really a bit pointless. Um, And so even though he does reconquer a lot of Italy, he reorients the government so that it becomes a Greek-speaking government. So that really happens in the reign of Justinian. And then that's that's not because Latin is changing into Greek. It's because Latin is being replaced by Greek. So the mm. language that was always the majority language in that area just takes over and the minority language stops being used. Mm. And then in the whole Byzantine period after that, they basically use Greek. And Latin, is it just remains for kind of fossilized words. So there are commands in the army that are traditionally given in Latin in the Byzantine period and are things you say in praise of the emperor that are traditionally done in latin and there's legal terminology terminology it's traditionally latin but these are like fossilized words people often don't even know what they what they literally mean and they they basically are all functioning in greek and then of course comes 1453 and from then on of course the government is in turkish but latin is already born by them so how is how is Latin used in the medieval world versus versus today? Latin today, in up up until today, how is how was it has it been used? Why has it chosen to use Latin in the medieval world as a, as a, especially so, in Christianity? Um, yeah, I mean, I think Christianity, of course, starts off in Greek. I mean, actually, it starts off in Aramaic but we don't have that bit. Um, So already by the end of the first century BC, it's not in Aramaic anymore. It's in Greek. And initially, therefore, even Christianity in the West, the Bible is in Greek. But that's obviously not an easy situation for Latin speakers. And so they start producing these piecemeal translations. And that's not a great situation either, because then you have like people who don't know Greek trying to work out what the Bible actually says, and different people have different translations. You need a kind of authorized translation if you're going to have a a reliance on the Bible. And so in the fourth century AD, a chap called Jerome produces what we now know as the Vulgate translation of the Bible. He produces an authorized translation of the Bible, which is kind of signed off on by the Pope. And then in the West, that's what the Bible says. And you don't need to look at the Greek anymore. You don't need to look at the Hebrew because Jerome was inspired by God and he got it right. So you now have the church having kind of committed themselves to an official version of their, their sacred text, which is in Latin. And of, and, and of course, the, I, be, I believe that when the Roman Empire, before it was legal, that Christianity wanted to kind of suck up, if for the lack of a better word, to the Romans to make it, to make them prostitute the mess, right? And in the end, it became an official language yes. under the Roman Empire too, right? right? But that's complicated because there were always these two languages of the Roman Empire. And the whole question of legality of Christianity happens during the fourth century when Constantine is actually founding this second capital. So I'm not sure it it had to do with um, their relationship with the emperors, which is often conducted in Greek, so much as their their need to have the sacred text in a language that, that the Christians in the West understood. So, you know, at that period, they translate the Bible a lot. They translate it into Gothic, for example, for the Goths, um, there, it's only later that they become a bit nervous about translating it. it in antiquity, they're, it, they're happy to translate because they want people to be able to read it. Mm-hmm. And then when the Western Empire falls, it, 
Latin continues to be used as a kind of international language because the they're very automatically Italians. Like, we're Italians now. Just a metal pizza. No, because the different people who conquered the Roman Empire were lots of little groups and they didn't speak the same languages as each other. So you have the Goths and the Visigoths and the Huns and, and the, the Lombards and the Lombards. Exactly. And each of those peoples kind of takes a chunk. And in some cases, those peoples are not very numerous. And so when they settle down, they actually start speaking the language of the people that they've conquered. And in other cases, it doesn't work quite like that. But in all cases, they can't really communicate with each other except via Latin. And so you have Latin being the obvious international language because there's no other com common language. And also Latin being the language the church has committed itself to. And the church having quite a powerful role because this idea that like the church is purely spiritual and they have no secular authority that doesn't exist at that point the church has secular authority too so it kind of just made sense in the west to keep on using latin but latin splits in a really kind of interesting way so the the people who are trying to use it as an international language keep on trying to use a really old version of it. So they're still trying to talk like Cicero and Caesar and Jerome with his Bible. But the people who are just like ordinary Latin speakers living in their villages, milking their cows and planting their wheat, they lose contact with people in other areas of the empire because obviously you know, communication's been really seriously disrupted by the breakup of the empire. And so the ones off in Spain don't talk very much anymore to the ones in Italy. And therefore, Latin ordinary peoples like farmers and shopkeepers Latin in Spain turns into Spanish, while farmers and shopkeepers Latin in Italy is turning into Italy, and farmers and shopkeepers Latin in Romania is turning into Romania at Romania, etc. So the Romance languages just kind of drift apart gradually and they drift apart from each other and they also drift apart from this international standard that's kind of held together by people from different regions trying to communicate with each other. Now, why, why does French sound so much different than if it's because Italian and Spanish and Portuguese is somewhat similar, right? So why, why does French... And French is very much in that class of Romance languages as well. So why 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 did yeah. French decide to be so different? I, think I don't want to be like those guys. I want, I want to be yeah. in my own. No, table. there's two reasons. There's two reasons I think. One is that French has what we call a Celtic substrate. So there were speakers of Gaulish already there when the Romans conquered France. It's not like it's not like it was an empty place. Mm. Um, they spoke a language that would have meant it's, it's easier Irish. for Jesus not to conquer, wouldn't it? Yeah. So um, those people who spoke that language related to Irish shifted to speaking Latin, but they kept some features of their original language. So, for example, if you're counting in French, when you get to eighty you say quatre vingt, you say four twenties. You don't, that's the word for 80 is four twenties. Um, and that's because the Celts, the people who were there originally, they counted by twenties. And so there were always, French was, Latin as spoken in Gaul was always a bit different in certain respects from Latin elsewhere because it has a Celtic substrate. But then you also get, different invaders moving into France from the ones that moved in to other places. And so they had Vikings. They were not that far away from Scandinavia, if you think about it. Mm. And so like Normandy, um, Normandy, what that means is the place of the men from the north. 
and the men from the north are the Vikings. So you get all these Vikings who actually not just raid Normandy, because if you raid, you don't really transfer your language, but they actually settle in Normandy. And eventually they start speaking French. That's why, you know, Norman French is a kind of French, but it doesn't mean that their original languages don't leave any trace on it. So, of course, well, thank you so much for coming on. Why should people learn Latin today? I mean, it is a beautiful language, but apart from that, why should people learn it? I think they should, first of all, learn it because it's fun. Um, And if you don't find it fun, well, then maybe you shouldn't learn it. But um, it is a lot of fun. So I would encourage everyone to try it for that reason. Also, there's a lot of great things you can read in Latin, if you have learned it, which are not nearly as good in translation. So if you want to read the poems of Virgil, for example, they're often, you know, not that good in English, but they're great in Latin. Um, And also, it gives you so much of a better understanding of how other languages work, including English, once you've learned a language that's that different. And do you need to go, because the way I understood it, I was posted in a forum about Latin once, and they said you kind of have to go all in. It's not like learning modern languages today, where you can learn half hours to put it that way, where you you kind of have to go all in to if you want to learn Latin, right? I wouldn't say that, actually. I would say that you can gain something from learning a small amount of Latin. Um, it depends on what your goals are. If what you want to do is to read the poems of Virgil and appreciate them, you are going to have to learn quite a lot of Latin before you could do that. But if what you want is to understand better how language works and how English works, you can do that with actually quite a small amount of Latin. And of course, one of those ways that you can learn is by buying your books. So where can people buy your books if, if they want to learn basic Latin? Cambridge University Press. All of my books are sold by Cambridge University Press, but they can probably get them from Amazon as well, frankly. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Do you have anything else you wish to promote on the social media or links that we wanted to put down in the description when I publish this episode? Um, since I mentioned the ancient schoolroom, why don't you put a link to the Reading Ancient Schoolroom, which is www.readingancientschoolroom.com. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been Wadatesh Well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please check out some of our other episodes and you're definitely going to find something you like. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. Please like, share, and subscribe. And if you've got the time, write a little review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts if you liked this episode. That would help us out a lot. Please like, share, and subscribe. My name is Alan, and I'll see you next time.